guys welcome here um, so let me just kind of explain real quick kind of what what this is birthed from well, why we do our Q&A Q&A or our Chick-fil Q and coffee nights um, and and our goal with this is that uh, we love to be able to sit down and and talk over a cup of coffee with any of you at any time and that offer always stands but um, but sometimes it's hard to meet with everybody. And so we thought, what if we could have a cup of coffee with everybody um, one night and just be able to answer whatever's on your mind? And so that's kind of where this was birthed, is, is this ability for us to take some time just a little bit sort of away from our study, although a number of our questions I'm sure will relate to it as we've been walking through Genesis. Um, but to hear what's on you guys' mind a little bit and, and questions that you have at this age and stage of life and then to try our best to to give you some, some wisdom and answers that hopefully will help you along in this. And so well, we started doing this several years ago and then we started asking other people smarter than us in, at least in specific areas, but probably smarter than us just in general, um, to come and, and help us out with this as well. And so uh, tonight we have three guests with us helping us out. One of them, you probably know a little bit, this is Ryan Vincent and that is Rachel's husband. Um, which means their kids are just at home alone right now, actually. Um, but uh, that's okay. They're pretty tough. Matthew's honest He's and all that stuff. That's right. Matthew's babysitting. And I pity anybody who tries to take on Audrey while they're gone. So, um, so Ryan is here. And Ryan is uh, he's on staff at Sunnybrook. Ryan loves the Word and loves to study. He's got his master's in it's theology. Master's in theology. I've been saying that, so I hope I'm glad I'm right. So... Um, so anyway, uh, we brought him here to help answer questions you have about the Bible, about theology or faith. And, and then we have Melissa Oliver here. Melissa Oliver actually came through um, our campus ministry, connected with uh, Sunnybrook there. She was here back when it was the Brook. And she's one of our first table group leaders, actually, and our first generation of table group leaders. But she's, uh, her husband does college ministry here in town, Stephen Oliver. The very first wedding I ever, wedding ceremony I ever did was these guys. Yeah. And uh, Melissa is actually a marriage and family therapist here in town. And so we brought her here to help answer any questions you may have about relationships or just what it looks like to cope with anxiety in college or depression or friends who, who are struggling with some of those things. And so um, we're really excited to have her here. And then we also have Brian Elbing. Brian also goes to Sunnybrook and Brian is a professor of fluid mechanics, right? That's so, mechanical okay. and aerospace. Yeah. Mechanical, PhD in mechanical aerospace and is right? Yeah. Engineer. Okay, sweet. So words I hadn't even really heard <laughs> until a few years ago. Um, and uh, Brian is really uh, just a, the, the little bit I know, but more from what I get to actually hear from guys like Ryan and Jim Johnson, a great dude and a wise dude. And so we're really excited to have him here talking and, and being able to answer any questions you may have about science as it relates to faith and those kinds of things. And then I'm here, and uh, I'll demonstrate some of the things I learned in that women's defense class, if anybody has questions about that, um, or anything like that, but um, I'll try and, you know, help out a little bit as well, too. Last person I want to introduce to you is Aaron Madden. Um, some of you might know him, I don't know. Um, Aaron is actually, for, for those of you who don't know, one of our student leaders 
here, and, and we brought Aaron because uh, Aaron actually does a great job in discussions we've had of him of being able to articulate questions and think through those well. And so we kind of asked him to come and be your voice tonight. There will be opportunities for you to raise your hands and ask questions or even text them into this number up here if you want to. Um, but Aaron's kind of going to MC and walk us through some of these things and, and hopefully be able to kind of speak on your behalf as maybe other questions come up while we're talking. So with that said, I'm going to hand it over to you, man. So y'all uh, sent in questions from your table group. Um, we voted on them uh, on Facebook. So we're just going to start off with some of the top questions. Um, and then like Drew said, we'll have time to get into some other ones if you send them in or, or raise your hand. So uh, the first one, we're going to start with Ryan, um, actually. Uh, so this question involves politics, um, kind of a hot button issue right now. Midterms are coming up. Um, so the question is, how should faith play into our, our involvement in politics? Are we obligated to be involved in politics just because we have the right to be? Um, who, if you don't mind, I think it was, where's Sarah? This came from a certain table group, and I want to get some clarification. Is, is the question more along the lines of, should we be active in, like, voting or should we take an active interest or is it can I be in Paul like can I like run for office what what where did the question go okay okay um, well I mean quite simply I would say there uh, you can do most things if you can do so in like a Christian holy way um, and, and what that means is as when it comes to voting or an interest in politics. It's to it's to have appropriate expectations for what um, local or state or federal governments can even achieve. Where I see what are otherwise you know normal seeming Christians, where I, where I see them go a little over the deep end with with politics, is when they look at candidate X as some sort of person that can fix what really ails America or can really fix what's wrong with life as a Christian in, in uh, the United States. And that's, that's starting to put a, a um, ill-advised trust in some human leader. Um, Psalm 146 starts with uh, do, uh, basically, do not trust the princes of this world. And, and the translations will vary. But it's, it's like, yeah, God ordains leaders. We know that from Romans 13, from Daniel, from, um, from Peter's works. We, we know that from the prophets, that God just seems to be sovereign over all things, including political leaders. And yet the Bible speaks quite clearly that you don't, you don't like put all your chips in on those people. Like those people are, are still people. And so they're, they're imperfect. They, they can be deceitful. And, and their ability to make lasting change is is limited at best and so I would say participate and and like vote your convictions sure um, have reasonable expectations for what can actually happen at that level and this is where I kind of ask people is whoever's in the White House as important as we all want to make it out to be or maybe the best thing that we can do is uh, is to live out lives of holiness in our communities. Um, a good example of that is like 
So in 19, I think 1974 was Roe v. Wade. So nationwide legalization of abortion. Some states still deal with some things, but big landmark case, right? Is in 1992 or 1994 that the next big case came, which was, this was in uh, Pennsylvania, Planned Parenthood versus um, Casey, I think was the case name, where they challenged some of these abortion laws and then like Christians kind of wanted this stuff to get reversed and the courts upheld it using the 14th Amendment. So the, the abortion war was being lost. But what I love is that in, since that time, there's been a huge uptick in just Christians starting um, like at-risk pregnancy centers or, or high, like crisis pregnancy centers like Stillwater Life Services and other places like that. You just have, okay, we can't do it from the top down. What if we just start taking care of the needs in our communities? Which, I mean, if you go back to the first century world where like our New Testaments were written, um, big problem in the Roman world was if, if Brian has a kid and, he, and he's not too impressed with this kid, he can just legally tell his wife, just go put that kid outside and let it die. I don't want that one. It's called exposure. And in light of that legal practice in the Roman world, Christians were some of the, mo were, were some of the people that were most well known for adopting kids that they'd find outside. And, and we can't change the policy from Caesar on down. But we can we can do politics at kind of like the the ground level, and and enact change, and so yeah, you can do politics, um, but far more important than whoever is in office is your personal holiness and how can you? Politic is actually a word that just means an agreed upon way of living for a community. How can we in Stillwater do politics well by being holy people here and caring for the needs of, of our community? You know so. Politics is voting, but politics is also living like Christians where you are. I don't know if that helps, but I don't know if that answered your question either. But So would you have any suggestions or kind of like ground There's just so much anger, right, in yeah. uh, the United States between like different political parties. Um, yeah. Like how would you suggest that we be involved in politics? Because part of that is discussion. Sure. Um, well, um, well, I'll just give you some advice on how to think well whenever you're in those discussions. Um, try to stop being offended when someone disagrees with you. It drives me nuts. It is not a crime for someone to disagree with you. So don't be offended. Um, in that same vein, treat other people with a great degree of charity. Don't assume the worst about their views. Don't assume that from the two or three sentences they give you about their preference for candidate A or B that you can interpolate everything else about them and they're, because they're on a different side than you that they're wrong. Like, that's just that's bad thinking. That is really bad thinking. Um, that, I, I'm, I'm going to read actually a little section from this is, this is my, one of my favorite books. It's called The Apostolic Father. So really old stuff. Um, but there's a, a letter called the Epistle to Diognetus, and and it's basically somebody said, "Hey, can you tell me what it's like to be a Christian? But well, what do Christians believe? And then and then how does that affect their lives? How do they live?" And in chapter five, he explains why Christians are so different than other people. And I would hope that this uh, perspective like this could could inform our ability to actually have good political dialogue. 
He says, uh, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity. This is 200 uh, CE or AD, whichever one you like. I'm not trying to offend anybody. They're both fine. Um, For Christians, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. It's good to remember that. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice any eccentric way of life. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflections of ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, in other words, they're everywhere, right? And they follow the local customs in dress and food and in other respects of life. They live in an actual culture. At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. This is where they're different. They live in their own countries, but as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. I talked about earlier. They share their food, but not their wives. Good to know. (laughs) They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they're glorified in their dishonor. They're slandered, yet they're vindicated. They're cursed, yet they bliss. They're insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they're punished, they rejoice as though brought to light. It's, it's a really interesting little par- uh, paragraph on what the Christian life is as citizens, uh, like as residents of this earth and citizens of another kingdom. And... That's why I just, like, it takes a whole lot to get me really wound up about politics because I just don't understand. Not that they're unimportant, but I need to temper my, um, the value I place in very, very fleeting temporary things. And I just, I don't want to be 85 one day if I get to live that long and turn around and see how much time I wasted bickering about policies that came and went 45 years ago. And you guys are all young, so everything feels like it's very imminent and, and it's never going to change. And in, when you're in your 30s and 40s, you'll be like, hey, you remember when we got all bent out of shape about that one dude? What's he doing? I think he died. I don't know. You know, you just kind of move on. And, and maybe we could have that kind of, um, we could remember those, those ideas while we're having, hopefully, civil discussions. Uh Brian, we'll move to you. Um, so this question has to do with going through Genesis and um, kind of the, the backstory is that uh, we talked about how Genesis is not was not written to answer our scientific questions. Um, that's not what the authors were trying to communicate. Um, so that being said, um, can evolution still be seen uh, as consistent with these accounts? I mean, so I, I read this question, and I was like, so the question itself presumes that evolution is a fact, okay? and it's not. Um, now, I say that, but I, I know a lot of scientists from a lot of different fields, and uh, there's a large percentage that are Christian. And um, 
I know some that believe in evolution and are Christian. I know some that are uh, do not believe in evolution and are Christian. Um, now, from so cl- clearly, I mean, these are rational people that are taking these different views. Um, I think I think sometimes the question and then where it feels like this is like butting up against each other is because there's it's primarily a misconception about what science is um science the purpose of science is to observe the world around you and then make educated guesses about why it behaves what it behaves like and then draw theory upon that and then if it's sufficiently proven it becomes a law Evolution is a theory. Um, people get upset when you point that out, but the bottom line is it's never been observed. Um, there's never been, uh, you know, there, there's variation within species, but there's never been where you have information increase the, in, within the DNA from one to another. So there's never been an increase in information. Therefore, at the macro level, there's never been an observation of it, therefore it's theory. Um, now, so then you say, okay, well, so are you saying you don't think it's a good theory? Well, no, evolution's a fantastic scientific theory, and it's doing what it's supposed to do. It is supposed to take the information, the observations that are present, and make the best educated guess. That's their best educate, ed- educated guess. Realizing that any educated guess that involves a miracle would be a bad science okay so th- that has to be removed um and so um so you got like kind of two possibilities right god either i assume we're all christians in this room or at least curious and can accept that uh that that point of view so um you can view that as okay god either miraculously stepped in and you know took went from non-life to life abiogenesis or he stepped in and I guess still had to make that step and then did a sequence of mutations over really long periods of time. And for me, um, I don't think that's a very logical one from Christian point of view. Okay, I say that because uh, it's kind of like Occam's razor. You try to get the simplest solution. And... Uh, to me, the simplest solution is why why do a bunch of miracles do one? So um, that that's kind of the, the position I take. Um, but like I said, there's tons of Christians that I know and respect that take a different one. Um, actually, in my area of expertise is fluid mechanics, and uh, when I was at Penn State, there's a very big, well-known fluid mechanics professor that I'm friends with, and he is passionate about this subject and he is adamant that creationism is is so definitive and he he gives talks on that alone and then at the same time I my grandfather's a PhD in chemistry and he believes evolution was the way that it was played out both both Christians both Christians so I mean and and even for me so I guess I'll make it more personal that I I was kind of wrestling with this when I was in college, too. I was like, okay, I, I see kind of the path that I'm going down, where I want to be. So I'm going to have to answer questions like this. Um, a, it doesn't come up nearly as often as you think at your age. <laughs> uh, B, um, 
I, I decided, okay, I have to make make a decision, and I I knew I knew Christianity was true. I had tested that thoroughly for for many years. Um, so so I had to reconcile that. Okay, there's the Word of God that I believe, and evolution that says that, and that, and they're they're seemingly incompatible. So if I am going to answer the question whether or not I'm going to believe evolution or not, I need to reconcile these two things, and in you can go down that path, and those Christians that believe in evolution, they, they've done that. They've, they've, uh, you know, you read Genesis as, as a metaphor, and, um, you know, they have fine points of view. I so it, for me personally, I had to get in the mindset of like, okay, I'm going to believe that that's the case, so then I can test it, because if 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 I'm trying to answer the question, I always I'm like, well. I believe that it's completely defying scripture, then I'm just going to, I'm not going to give up my faith over it. That'd be dumb. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's how I, that's the side I came down on. I don't know if that fully answers the question or not. It's an interesting parallel, I think, between your question and then the last one. And it, I think it's our uh, tendency to jump to you believe in evolution, you're not a Christian, or you're a Democrat, you're not a Christian, you're a Republican, you must be Christian, or things like that, and just how quickly we can get away from the truth, so I really um, appreciate how you talk, right, so you have a view um, that you work to, but you also know people who have a different view, and you treat that view with respect, so. Yeah, and I I know people in this town that, like, in my department that are Christian that, that we both have the opposite view it's um, so it's very common I, I'd say actually uh, I'll say that the science uh, most people kind of view science as like there must be a bunch of atheists that is the most obscure position to take in, in, in among scientists um, you won't find it for the most part in fact when you do they're, they're pretty oddballs um, because that's a completely illogical position to take um it's, uh, yeah, the, it's actually why I brought this. I, I just flew in, so I, I went home, put the kids to bed, grabbed this book on my way out, because I knew there was, there was a section in here. And it's, um, talking about this, this, this theology, um, or like, I'm sorry, philosophy, that, that logical positivism claims to lay the foundation for each step as it, as it goes along. You don't really need to know what they're exactly talking about. In a rational way. So all they're saying is they're trying to lay down explaining things in a rational way. Science, right? That's what we're trying to do. Yet in reality it puts forth no theoretical universal to validate the first step. Positivists accept, though they present no logical reason why this should be, that what reaches them from the outside may be called data. It is objective... Well, it doesn't matter. Um... What, what that means is, and I, I first read that from C.S. Lewis in a different version, uh, but scientists that want to be atheists cut their legs off at, at the bottom. It has to be, you have to have some kind of belief, because what that just said was, there is not a single piece of information that you guys possess that didn't come through your senses, your eyes, ears, nose, skin. All the information you possess came through your five senses. Um... And that's true for each and every one of us. No computer helps us, because every piece of information that a computer did, it came through your senses. That's how you found out about it. So 
in the end, what it's saying is, once you say there's no God, there's no reason to believe that any of your senses are telling you any true information. Right? And so you just cut the tree off at the roots, and then you build up from there, is what, what an atheistic scientist would be doing. So most are either agnostic, they say, I don't care about that question, or they're theists. They, they have, a, have a religion. So is that, can I just ask this, is that because if you don't believe in God, you believe that your senses are like basically just adapted to help you survive, not adapted to help you discover truth? Is that, is that what you're saying? Is that why it cuts your legs out from underneath you? Well, I mean, it's the matrix, right? Okay. There, there's no reason why you should interpret any of the information you have as reality. As objective. In fact, you know, me and one of my friends from grad school, we used to joke around about people that were eight atheists because we would say like everything was random everything was like there's no reason to to believe any of this is happening <laughs> right there basically i like what he's saying that to someone who's devoted their life to collecting data and making sense of it they are choosing to ignore a large segment of data to fit their presuppositions they already know where they're going to land so when this data doesn't help me get there i just move it to the side and keep going Right? Yeah. Which, that's bad science. Yep. Uh, Melissa, we'll move to you. Got a wide range of, of questions here, but um, this one deals with relationships. Um, so, uh, what does a God honoring, or what do God honoring roles look like for men and women in a relationship? Um, so, I think to answer this question, you have to start with um, each individual and their individual relationship with Christ um, and really, really, really build from a solid foundation in each of them first, that both of them are God-honoring people and are seeking God in their individual lives and that they're being discipled and that they're in church and that they have accountability and that they are involved in spiritual disciplines. Once we have that foundation, then we can talk about what God-honoring roles looks, look like um, and other Drew or Ryan may be able to speak a little bit more to exactly what the Bible says, but the Bible isn't, there's, there's nothing laid out in the Bible that says this is exactly what a woman does. The woman stays home. The woman takes care of the kids. The man goes to work. The man earns the money. Um, the Bible isn't that specific about that. I think what I, what comes to mind in, the, in my work and the work that I do now is whenever roles start to be used and perverted and used, um, in a non-Christian way. So that's kind of what I'm going to speak to a little bit more. And that I would say is whenever roles are used as a form of creating a power differential in a relationship. So if you're able to, um, if, you're, if you're able to ask a couple who has more power in this relationship and there's a quick and obvious answer to, well, he does or she does, that's probably not very healthy. Um, Un unless, there's some caveats there, but un unless they have agreed upon that and there's flexibility about it. So if, if the man is the one who works and has um, more of the income and the woman stays home, but the man has an injury at work and now suddenly has to be the one to stay home and the woman now goes to work, there's, there's flexibility in those roles. I think that's a very healthy sign. So flexibility is a sign of a healthy relationship. Um, Again, that power can be distorted too. I think another element to look for whenever there's a difference in roles that is perverted would be 
the presence of fear in a relationship. Whenever, if you ask someone, um, if you were to ask either party, is there someone who's more afraid of the other person in this relationship? If there's a, a quick knee-jerk answer to that question, that's not a good sign. So when there, when there are roles that create power differentials, that then also creates an, an atmosphere of fear, that is unhealthy. So then above that, in terms of what that does look like whenever it is, you're, you are in a healthy realm, I think there's a lot of different ways that that can look healthy. Um, just depending on your, on your phase of life and um, the goals that you have set in your, um, what your church is teaching. So that's, so that I feel like I can halfway answer that question of what it shouldn't look like and warning signs of whenever there's, there's power difference in a relationship and when there's fear. Now then above that, what does the Bible say about God honoring relationships? I feel like there are smarter people sitting up here who could answer that a little bit better than me, but is there anything that you guys would speak to that? I mean, I would add, I think you're touching on something that like, um, the Bible seems to, um, seems to specify different but equal roles for mm-hmm. men and women. Um, that they, they have different roles to play within marriage, but the, that there's not one that is less value or worth. That uh, It does tend to say that uh, men are designed to be the spiritual leaders in the family, but the biblical definition of leadership has um, so little to do with power and so much to do with service. Um, the, that's the definition that Jesus modeled for us is that, uh, that the person who is leading is the person who always takes the lowest seat, is the person who's always down um, to wash the feet of others. That's what Jesus did. That's what he modeled. And so, in fact, that's why Paul can say, husbands, you're supposed to love your wives like Jesus loved the church in that he lowered himself and gave himself up for her. And so I love, it's very interesting to hear you talk about power differentiation because biblically there have been, actually there have been, um, Christians in the past who have taken biblical teaching and they've used that and twisted yeah. it into yes. a power differential, yes. a way to gain power yeah. that the wife submits to me and she listens to what I have to say and I, my word is final. Um, and that's everything opposite of what Jesus models for us. And that's everything opposite of the way the Bible describes what, what leadership is supposed to look like. So it's, it's interesting to hear you use that phrase. Even. And when you're looking at scriptures that have to do with um, what a man and a woman does in a relationship, Make sure you read the whole thing, not just the verse. It is so easy. It is so it would it is so easy to pull out lots of verses out of the Bible and make it look like the man should have more power and the wife should submit to the man and meet all of the man's needs and he is supposed to be in charge of her and be her head and her role as a servant. It is so easy to do that and just pull out scripture and do it in that way. But also, if if you um, can can look at your scripture in your Bible and read the whole passage all of the rest of your answers uh, are, are just right there about how this exists in, a, in that atmosphere of um, partnership and, and equality in that, in that sense. So um, read the whole passage. You can, I mean, that's good advice in general, but you can easily go wrong when you're not looking at the entire uh, context of, of those passages in Scripture. So you touched on, like, how it's not, I think there are, roles that society has given or like passed down like gender so we're kind of in this moment of Mm -hmm. generations above us where women stayed at home and took care of children and now you're seeing more women go to work and and different things um and you touched on that that's not what the bible is speaking to if are you able to um say this is a role or this is something that a man 
can provide or should provide that a woman cannot um, or should not and vice versa? Um, I don't know. <laughs> what does the Bible say about that? I don't know. I, uh, I, would, I would say the Bible looks like there are you might be able to call them normative roles, but it, they're not exclusive. Like, you had a great example of, there, there are time, like flexibility is really helpful. And so, no, I don't know that there's anything that like, is only a male trait in a marriage, or is only, I mean, God, you, you can see where the norm is broken a number of times in scripture. You got Deborah, you got many other that are, oh, wow, that's surprising that we would have that. but. This is how it works, you know? So, and when it all comes down to it, I, I look at healthy relationships and say, do, do you and your spouse make one another more holy in the time you spend together? And if not, who's the net drain on the system? Because we need to talk, right? And that's, I mean, that's just something you can have for anything. Like when you walk into a conversation, when people are already talking and you show up, does the conversation get more or less holy? Like, it's a great way to, to think about your interaction with other people. Like, does, does, like, has Rachel, have our, has our marriage in almost 12 years now, have we become more holy because of the spirit working in one another, near one another? Or, like, I would say, do you have a crappy Christian marriage where one of you is stunted or you're both becoming less holy over time? And, like, I just, I can't be domineering and bring holiness to the, to the, to the marriage. I can love her in a sacrificial way and bring holiness to the marriage. I mean, it's, yeah. So, I don't know if that helps, but if I were to try to sum it all up, it's do you make one another more holy by spending time together? It's a good kind of guiding principle. All right, uh, Drew finally got to you. Um, so, what does free will look like in a God-ordained world? Um, and kind of parentheses is how do we already how do we have choice how do we have choices if God already knows our future um, I, you know we're, we were talking about when we were looking at this it feels like every time we do some sort of Q&A we get a question like this or in this realm and there's something that whether it's human beings in general or college students that is fascinated by this idea of free will or, or lack of free will or whatever that is um, so I did actually want to quick just turn back to uh, Aaron as the spokesperson for all of you so this is he's gonna tell me what all of you think um, like why do you think that is why do you think college students seems like they ask this a lot and, and wonder this a lot I think because with this idea of of God knowing beforehand then it seems like decision that all events are set in stone <laughs> And we're at a time in our life where we're making a lot of different decisions, and those decisions have consequences, both good and bad. Yeah. Um, and so I think we want to know if there's like a reason to be worried or like agonizing over a decision, or if it, the choices that we make matter or if they're yeah. just like yeah. already there so well, that's good I mean that makes sense yeah that you're in a decision where you're making or you're in a point of life where you're making a lot of these decisions and so does that even matter does that that makes sense um re okay give me the parentheses question one more time um 
how do we have a choice um, if God already knows our future? Okay, um, yeah, that right there could mean one of two things. And, and this is where I think it's important to clarify what we mean when we ask that. It could mean, number one, um, how, does, how do we have a choice if God predetermines our future? That could be what people mean when they ask that. Or it could be number two, literally what it is, how do we have free choice if God knows our future? And so I want to clarify between those two things and say the first one, how do we have free choice if God predetermines our future? Uh, I would say this, um, biblically I don't believe that he does predetermine your future and everything that is about to happen in there. We, we see biblically that when it comes to things like redemptive history, that is um, the story of how God is working to redeem the world, that there are big picture events that he has preordained and that he has predetermined are going to happen. He predetermined that Israel would be his chosen people and vessel through which he would bring the Messiah. He predetermined um, that, that David would be this king that would represent what the future Messiah should be. He predetermined that Jesus would be born um, through the people of Israel come to say, and there's nothing that was going to happen that would change those things. God lined that out already. Um, and so we see kind of like big picture events that, that seem to take place, but on a more personal level, like an individual, individual level, I, I don't actually see that in Scripture all that after, often, that, that God predetermines exactly what's going to happen in your life. We see things like Acts 17, 26, where, where Paul seems to indicate that God may have kind of chosen where each and every person would be born and at what time for a particular purpose, that he may have kind of placed you in the place you are for a purpose. It seems like that may be true. Um, but as far as the individuals that he predetermined that you were going to go to OSU, we, we don't see that in the Bible anywhere. In fact, over and over again, we see the opposite, that God, I believe we see that God often designs and desires for people to do one thing and they choose the other um, because um, and uh, not every Christian or theologian is might, might agree with the next statement that I'm going to make but I believe that God has though he is sovereign and able to be in control over all things that in his sovereignty he has chosen that he would rather have a world or a universe in which human beings can freely choose him or not that there is greater joy for him, greater glory for him when we have the choice to go against him and choose him instead. And so he seems to do this. In fact, um, there's a point, I want to say it's Luke 11, um, where actually, uh, this is one of the most explicit references where Luke says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law rejected God's purpose for them because they refused to believe John the Baptist. And so he says, this was God had a purpose for them and they rejected it. And so uh, I don't believe God predetermined. So question two, um, how can there be free choice if God knows um, the future? And this is my answer to that would be, don't confuse question two with question one. Don't, don't assume that because God knows that's the same as predetermining. I, I know that every time, I, every time I take my kids to Brahm, I can predict the future, all right? My, uh, my oldest daughter is going to get a chocolate shake and my youngest daughter is going to get cookies and cream. And like, I know that beyond, like, I can just tell you. I've taken them there and I know what's going to happen. That does not mean that I caused them to. And nobody would go, well, what's the point of even taking them to Brahms? You've already predetermined that Hadley's going to get cookies and cream because you know she's going to do that. No, that's, that's not true. Just because I know it will happen doesn't mean I caused it to happen. And, uh, and, 
and though God knows in a deeper way than I do, right? Like he's never, there's a chance I might be wrong. There's a chance that Hadley might go with chocolate chip one time, all right? Um, and God will never be wrong, but the principle still holds. God knowing the truth about the things that will happen in, in life does not mean that he does not hold out the ability for us to choose differently. There's even some areas that are kind of interesting where God says to Israel, because you have rebelled against me, I'm going to bring judgment to you. And then seems to hold out another option and says, but if you repent, what I, if you repent, judgment won't come to you. And it seems like God seems to hold these two futures together, knowing what's going, he, uh, ultimately he knows where it goes, but he holds these two futures before Israel and allows them pick, to pick those things. And so, say, don't, uh, though he knows, and he does know, don't confuse that with predetermining, which I, I don't believe he does. I was just thinking, if we really believe that everything was truly, there was no changing it, what would be the point in prayer? Or like yeah. asking yes. God for things. So. I could think of like um, Abraham, right? In the Old Testament, yes. it, God's like, I'm, gonna, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, well, what if I can find 50 people? Yes. What if I can find 40? What if I can find 10? You know, if we, and then we take that like to our time. If we just believe that um, some, if somebody was ill, that it was just God's, it was already determined yes. if they were going to get better or not get better. What's the point in yes. asking for them to get better? Yes, yes. Oh, multiple times, Moses prays on behalf of Israel when God says, I'm going to judge and destroy them, and I'll just start again with you. And Moses prays, and God says, okay. Um, Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says, this is what God says, get your house in order because you're going to die, and judgment's coming. Or, yeah, because you're going to die and things will move on. It's not even a, a verse about judgment, actually. It's just, hey, this is what's happening. And as Isaiah is leaving the room, Hezekiah starts pleading with God to not take his life. And before Isaiah gets out of the palace, God says, turn around and go tell Hezekiah, I heard his prayer, and I'm going to add to his life. And so we see biblically, actually, that the picture that is painted is, is that it does matter whether we pray, that God does hear us, that he does listen to those things. Okay. Um, Melissa, we'll go back to you. Um, this is, I think, kind of a, a personal question, but um, can apply to all of us. Um, how do I help my friend who is dealing with depression and anxiety? Um, I think my first piece of advice, if you have a friend who's dealing with a mental health issue, is to be very intentional about just being a really good friend, about showing up, about returning text messages, phone calls, um, visiting, spending time with, just be a really good friend. One of the best um, things you can do to help combat anxiety and depression is quality social support. So if you can be a piece of that really quality social support for someone, like really be intentional about that and show up for someone. Um, because a missed text message to somebody, a non-return text message to somebody who's depressed and has depressed brain talking to them is going to say, they didn't return my text message, they don't think I'm important enough, I probably am not important enough, I'm not worthy of love, I'm not worthy of attention. That creates a downward spiral. So um, be a really intentional and a really, really good friend to those people who are hurting. Um, I think you can also encourage your friend to reach out for help. Um, you are not crazy if you have depression or anxiety or a mental health issue. Um, I'm really, really thankful for Sunnybrook in that they do a very good job of um, 
just talking about mental health and that they have a counselor on staff and that they do things that show and communicate that this is not a thing you just pray need to pray harder about. I've never heard that message at all at Sunnybrook. I know there are lots of other churches, though, that probably have delivered similar messages to that, that these are things that just need to be prayed out and that counselors are for weak people or medication is whenever you're for actually really crazy. Um, so if you have messages like that coming from a, church, a home church, perhaps, I think that would be good to ask some questions about and to, to look at, at scripture about and maybe ask some of your ministers here at Sunnybrook about. Um, it's, there's, not, there's no shame in reaching out for help. So again, as you're reaching out for help, that's going to increase social support. Reaching out for help um, can look like even just talking with a minister, but looking at more professional help. It can be university counseling services. There are a lot of counseling services available to you as students. There are also a lot of really good quality counselors in Stillwater. Um, and it's, I, I would encourage you, if you are going to go to counseling, to you can go. For I would tell yourself, I'm going to commit to three sessions I might not like this person, but I'm going to give it three sessions to like to see if we vibe. It's really important that you vibe with your counselor. And if you don't, it's okay to switch. If, if you're going to have a good relationship with a counselor, you're going to need to have a... Um, that's going to... Almost more than anything, that's going to dictate the outcome of counseling is just the quality of relationship that you have with your counselor. So if you're not doing well, if you're not vibing after three sessions, I would say go ahead and ask and see if you can switch and, and get a different counselor. Um... Also, I mean, this just, these anxiety, depression, I mean, these, these issues are so huge in y'all's generation. Um, there are so many things that you can do that um, <laughs> doesn't go very well with college life, but um, very simply, just taking care of yourself. Don't consistently go to bed at 2 and 4 a.m. and get up for a class at 9 a.m. and expect that your mental health is going to be a-okay. <laughs> Don't drink six coffees a day or, and plus four monsters and think, no big deal. This has zero impact on me. You're setting yourself up for failure when you're not taking care of yourself in that way. When you sleep with your phone on and you hear it buzz throughout the night and you wake up and you turn text messages, not good for your mental health. When you're on Instagram, use your little phone hours counter thing and monitor and watch and be aware of how much you're on your phone and how much time you're on social media. Put limits on those things. Um, or set aside there's so much that our phones do that are pulling away from our mental health your phone um gives you a very shallow shot of feeling like you get some social support out of it it it's kind of like a quick high of that but that's not what our brains are made to do our brains are made for depth in that area and so you kind of feel like you're getting it but it doesn't reach what our brains are made for real social connection with people and so it's easy to get a phone and feel like Okay, I'm doing really well. I, I'm connecting with people online. It's not really worth much. Like, that's not what we're created for. Um, so there's a lot you can do in terms of just um, taking care of yourself, exercising, moving your bodies, being intentional about that. All those things go so far in um, helping your mental health. So, um, and just broadly, being a good friend, encouraging counseling, trying out counseling, um, and being really smart about your phone, about your sleep, about your eating, all those things just go a really long way. So there's a whole lot more, whole lot more I could say on that, um, but I'll, I can pause there if you're happy to answer more questions. Yeah, I was thinking that we have a stigma about counseling that it's like for people that are like have a really big issue or um, it's like really serious and it. I know several people that go to counseling regularly and 
you know, are, you would look at them and, and they are like healthy functioning, but they um, see the benefit of counseling um, as, and I'm, I'm yeah. sure you could speak more about that, but um, just to kind of abolish this idea that counseling is um, kind of some, uh, an extreme measure. Right, just for the, for the weak or the really crazy or the almost inpatient or something like that. Yeah, absolutely not true. It's like, I mean, it's like going to the doctor when you're feeling, beginning to feel sick. I mean, it's just something that you can do to take care of yourself. It doesn't take pneumonia in an ER visit before you would be willing to go see your primary care physician. You don't have to be that bad before you go and help yourself to get better. All right, we're going to take a five-minute sure. five break. Um, so get up, walk around, get some coffee, but not too much coffee. Um, <laughs> then we'll come back. We're not going to be able to get to all of them. Um, so I think it goes without saying that uh, they'll be available to answer any questions afterward um, or in the future um, if, if we don't get to yeah, it tonight. I, I meant to say is we forgot to say this, actually. And we'll put, we can put Scott and Rachel's number up there afterwards too um, but that's my number right there and so I mean, if there's questions you have that you're maybe uncomfortable asking in front of people but really want to talk to we would love to meet with you in chat so whether that's just through text or call or if you want to sit down and grab a cup of coffee we'll do that and their numbers will be up after this as well sorry yeah, yeah so um, coming back to you Brian um, I think going through Genesis has uh, given um, us an opportunity to kind of think a lot about science and faith. And so this question is um, in line with that. Uh, this person says, I'm often told, uh, oh, before I get to that, um, we give you like a little bit um, while he answers this question. If you do have questions um, about this, like if you're in Hebrew scriptures or a biology class and there's something that comes up um, after this, just shoot up your hand and we'll address it. Um, so uh, the question is, I'm often told that science contradicts many parts of the Bible. Um, or the Christian faith in general. Is this true? And how do I respond to this? No. <laughs> so, I, I I saw that question before, and I, it, I don't know exactly how to answer that because I don't think it does. I would take it. Um, I think probably what's motivated behind that is, well, first, no, nobody's asking that question question is really being honest about it um you know for every 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 time you hear somebody you know the four corners of the earth oh the bible says that it's a flat earth well you can point to jeremiah and he describes it as a as a sphere or hanging in space with nothing around it before that was known to mankind so um i mean and neither, I'm not claiming that they knew that that was the reality. <laughs> the, the truth is, they're using uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, they're just trying to describe vast space like you and I would. Um, can, you, can you read the second part? Yeah, maybe, so, maybe, so I think, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe, so if somebody came at you and, and was like, this pointed something out, um, and maybe you are like, oh, I didn't know this was in the Bible. Or like this, this, there seems to be some validity, validity to what they're saying. How would you respond to that in that moment? Um, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a bit of a story. I think that might be better. Um, 
when I was in grad school, um, I was, it started a long conversation with, with one of my colleagues, she was getting her PhD at the same time, and she was an atheist, she was actually a card-carrying communist, which means she had to publicly avow that she was an atheist when she was in China, okay? So, for very adamant. Um, and one day she was having lunch and I was walking by and they were having some discussion. And they said, Brian, you're, you're one of those that actually believes there's a God. How, how can you say that? that? That seems to recur. So, rather than getting to the specifics of the Bible, I think it may be more overarching because it kind of show a little bit of the rationale of how I approach this um, in general. Um, and so I'm walking by, and she says, uh, you know, how, how can you believe that there's a God that's, that's crazy, that's ludicrous? And I said, how can you say that? <laughs> you're, you're an engineer. <laughs> and I said, e, one of the most solid ground truth that you hold to uh, in your profession is the conservation of mass, that there is neither created nor destroyed. Uh, the fact that there's stuff violates that. Can we say that? Say it one more time. The conservation of mass. Yeah. So, so matter is neither created nor destroyed. The stuff's here. That's that. Um, and I said, you know, there's stuff. It violates it. Um, and her response was, okay, fine. I'll concede that if there's a god that maybe made some stuff, but you can't personally know him. And I, I didn't. I didn't get into an argument. I said I disagree with that, and I walked away. And it started a, a lot of conversations where I honestly listened to her questions and sometimes said I didn't know the answer. I'd like to think about that for a while. And then I would meet with her the next day and I would give her my best answer. And sometimes I said I didn't know. Um, and, you know, it was a series of years and it got to the point where she told me that... I now have concluded that Jesus Christ was a real man that lived on this earth. He was God. He took human form and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. But I'm not ready to be a Christian. Like, and, and so like that, that's how far. And then the, you don't get that with a conversation. And it started off with questions about science. Um, and just being honest and having conversations. Uh, it's a lot of kind of a theory of... Or, uh, a trend amongst all these this our answers in response to all of your questions because um, a little bit of just it's okay to disagree and be civil and discuss and be honest about what you know and don't know I think it's really good too you just said it, be honest about what you know and don't know so there I think we can put a lot of pressure in that moment to feel like we have to have a response and we don't know everything and so it's okay to say that's a really good question. I'm going to go, like, can I have some time to think about it and, and look at it? And, and the, it gives you more credibility when you say that, mm -hmm. you approach it that way, too, because you're not just trying to win an argument. You're like, that's a really good question. Like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, they usually are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's usually questions you had at one point in your life, too. <laughs> So the next question, um, Ryan, we'll go to you. Um, there seem to be about one million different beliefs among Christians about 
the end times. Um, could you speak to some of the common misbeliefs or folk theologies about the return of Christ and what is actually mentioned in the Bible? Um, okay. Um, some common misbeliefs. Um, one is that there's going to be a um, mass exodus of Christians um, to go be in heaven with the Lord for some period of time. Those periods range from three and a half years to a thousand years, depending on how you want to mess around with what I think seems rather clear. But it there's that idea that then the things are just going to hit the fan back here on earth and there's going to be plenty of time after we've all left and gone to be with the Lord for um, people in absolute misery to figure out that they should probably make a wise decision and, and you know profess to follow Jesus now. Then there'll be, so that that's typically known as the rapture. Then, yes, preacher of rapture. And then there's... Um, and then later on, the Lord will come back and kind of destroy everything, and then now everything is put together. So that's one of those that is a, uh, that is, I understand where you get that. There is in First Thessalonians 4, I believe, is the passage where it says that the saints will be caught up into the air when Christ returns at the trumpet sounding. Um, but it just, it doesn't, nothing about that idea that we will be removed into heaven while earth remains unjudged and in turmoil or um, during the tribulation. You can't find any of that in in, uh, in Revelation um, and really a proper reading of First uh, Thessalonians 4 would be we will be caught up in the air, those of us who are still alive when Christ returns. The, the dead saints will rise, they'll come with Jesus, we'll go meet him in the air and come back and then he'll recreate everything and it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So that's some of the rapture stuff. But I would say the biggest misconception about the afterlife is that it is going to be in some far off removed like space-like city. That heaven is something way away. And really the, the overwhelming testimony of scripture is that heaven is going to look like this. It's going to be a recreated um, heavens and earth, which we hear heavens and we think, oh, that's still someplace else. That word in the Hebrew, all it means is the sky. There's going to be a recreated ground and sky. And so heaven is going to look like the garden in many ways. First two chapters of Genesis are the garden. Last two chapters of Revelation, the Bible ends in a new garden. And so I think heaven is going to look like a perfected human existence in the presence of God. Which means, like, we'll probably have jobs and like live in normal looking houses like i don't think i'm gonna have some you know starved for the dallas cowboys mansion i'm just it's gonna look like a perfect human existence and it's gonna look a lot like earth and we'll recognize one another like rachel and i won't be married in heaven i think we'll probably be best friends i don't know i don't know maybe i'm best friends with everybody but we'll have <laughs> like i'll have my memories so like we'll, we'll remember our life together a lot of people think that when we go to heaven, our memories will be wiped, although, uh, which is just nonsense because, like, like, would you walk up to Jesus and say, hey, man, cool scars, what are those for? <laughs> like, we'll remember things. <laughs> and so it's going to be like a perfect human existence in the presence of God on an earth, this earth recreated. How would you approach, um, or like, what is a good way to approach 
end times scripture, whether that's Revelation or elsewhere. There's a lot of different things that are written, and a lot of people have interpreted those a lot of different ways. So, yeah. Um, Ask someone to teach you how to read well and to recognize that just like different genres of movies or television you take it differently like oh yeah you used to be able to say the news you would watch objectively but even that's becoming comedy but it's you you take in different genres differently like you read a narrative and you know that it's a story you know that it's got a plot line to it you read history a little differently you read the psalms like poetry So it means it's just full of metaphor, and you're looking for parallelism. They say the same thing over and over. They'll say, you know, this is this, and then they'll say it in the exact, like, in a very different, like, they'll use different words to say the exact same thing. So you read it in poetic, in in a poetic way. The Gospels are theological biographies, but they have a theological agenda to them, and that's not bad. Um, Acts is more history. The letters are proposition propositional documents they're making a case for something so they're linear arguments unless it's John's letters then they swirl around Um, the big one that people struggle with is prophetic slash apocalyptic literature so Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel Daniel and then the the minor prophets and then the apocalyptic literature which is the uh, the book of Revelation those books have to be read understanding that they are using symbolism and metaphor left and right and there is um, they were intended to be understood by their original audience so this is why you gotta learn to read well revelation was not confusing to its first audience it made sense to them revelation you need you need the word bank that goes along with it you need a lexicon for lack of a better phrase or an, an image database what are all these references? Well, if you look at the original audience, those references are the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Isaiah. If you know what those books say, whenever, whenever Jesus comes riding in on a white horse, whenever you see the lamb standing as though slain, you know that Jesus is not actually a lamb. Like, he's not a lamb. Think of all the things that Jesus calls himself. He's not a door. He's not a shepherd. He's not a rock. He's none of these things. Those are metaphors, and we know how to interpret them back in the Gospels, and then we get to Revelation, we lose our minds. So you've got to learn how to read the book and a lot of this stuff. So I'll just throw it out. You're probably referencing things like the Left Behind series, which is now getting super old, so I don't even know if that even re- resonates anymore. But Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins um, could have, they should have gone back to school and learned how to read a book because they did not understand how to read Revelation. They read it all literally. And they just ran roughshod over all the metaphors and the symbols. And, I mean, when we speak in metaphor and symbols, we get it. Because we know the references. Revelation was written 2,000 years ago. Most of us don't know the references. You have to take a little time to go study what they mean and then put the document together. So don't use left behind to form our theology. Nope. Good as Firestarter, though. That's about all I could recommend it for. I got a question. If I may make a suggestion, think of Revelation as a survey of the entire history contained within the Bible, translated into prophetic language, and as you said, read it shortly after reading the other major prophets. Yeah, and and one of the... 
Yeah, and it's not one. It's not linear at all. It swirls, and so it's a it's a literary technique known as recapitulation. They keep saying the same thing over and over. If you go in Revelation, how many times does Jesus like judge, destroy the world, and then return in Revelation? Like six or seven times. We know that's not true. Maybe he just keeps saying the same thing over and over in an, like an intensifying way. So yeah, no, that's a great way of looking at it. I just realized I totally blew past any uh, giving y'all an opportunity to ask questions um, really about anything, but specifically any science-related questions, um, things that you heard in Biology 101 or Hebrew Scriptures or whatever, uh, before we move on to the next question. I wanted to give y'all an opportunity for that. We got one. I guess mine would be Well, that, um, well, I'm not going to put a defense against it um, or for it, either way. Uh, there's, because when you try to say reconcile faith and and, and science, you're you're trying to reconcile two very different things. Um, understand that science in no way is trying to tell you what is truth like if you believe that you are completely mistaken about what science is science is its purpose 100% is to explain the observable okay so whether or not Noah's Ark happened or not it's not observable science can't speak to it if it happened or didn't happen okay um and uh, I mean, I, I know of many experts that, that totally believe it. Um, but what you have to do is, um, so, so that's kind of the general answer. Then for you, for personally, right, I, I think you do have to question and, and, and wrestle with those kind of doubts. Um, you should. You're not... And, um, you know, when I was nine years old, my, my grandmother died, and I realized that this Christianity thing isn't a game, okay? Like, it either is or isn't real. And at this time, I was surrounded by all Christians. I was in a small little community. Everybody I knew was Christian. So I felt like I couldn't ask them in any way to to give me any guidance because clearly they had already made up their mind. Um, and so I started, I wanted truth. And so there's two things you always have to be challenging yourself with. One is your belief system and what you believe to be true consistent with your life. Okay. The things around you that you can observe. And then second is your belief system consistent within itself. So, when that question gets asked, the first thing I want to know is, do you believe in Noah's Ark? And if you don't, well, then we don't really have anything to discuss because you don't believe it, it happened, right? And any kind of explanation sounds like ludicrous because it, 
it's inconsistent with your own belief system so that it ever happened. So there's no discussion to be had. But if you do believe that the scripture says that it happened and that it happened, then you need to wrestle with, okay, if that's the case, then, then how did this play out? I'll, I'll touch on it real quick. I was smiling when you asked that question because I just like uh, bumped into this thing pretty hardcore this last week and, and we actually just recorded podcasts in the staff with um, what do you do when things in the scriptures unsettle you? Um, and it was basically based on my experience last week. Um, and, and so it's a good question. And, and one of the things, so Brian speak kind of a little bit from the science perspective and, and big picture stuff, but also it's really important for us when we read the scriptures that we don't um, read things in automatically that might not fully be there. Um, and so this is, honestly, this is even stuff I'm learning and working through, um, that a lot of the things that we read the Noah's Ark thing and we go, oh, it means a global flood that covered the whole world, so there's only two of every kind of animal left, and the only human beings left are Noah and his... Um, actually, uh, it's not explicit in that story that that's actually true. Um, so, for example, it says... Uh, the water rose up and covered the mountains. And we go, man, covered the mountains. Went over Mount Everest? Went over like... Um, and so we, that sounds crazy. But actually, that word covered in the Old Testament a lot of times just means like falls on. Like when someone comes in from, um, comes in from a rainstorm. We might say, dude, you are covered. You're soaked. We don't mean you're immersed in water. We, may, we mean a lot of water has fallen on you. And, and so that same Hebrew word gets used in that way. And, and that's one of the main reasons that people go global flood because, um, because they hear, well, if it covered the mountains, it had to cover everything else. No, covered often just means soaked. Um, and so I'm not actually, by the way, making a definitive case for it did cover the whole earth or it didn't. But what I'm saying is actually there, um, uh, don't assume, just don't go into the text going, it had to be the whole earth, and then see that as you read through. Actually, if you explore the text, there are reasons to believe that it may have been covering the known world, that it may have been covering uh, a large regional section of the world, um, Noah's world or known world at that time. And so, like I said, I, I haven't actually even landed which way I go there, but I want to make sure I'm staying faithful to the text and not trying to make the text say more than it is. Sometimes when we say the Bible contradicts scripture, what, or sorry, the Bible contradicts science, what's actually happening is our interpretation of the Bible is contradicting science. And we've got to be careful that we're actually taking the word at face value um, before trying to tear down stuff with science through it. So that's a great question, one I wrestled with this week. Any other questions? Right. Um, anybody can answer this, but uh, this was probably the biggest question in our small group was, can some Christian contemporary music be misleading? And if so, and how do you deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> I've got thoughts. <laughs> oh, I believe some, I do believe some Christian contemporary music can be misleading. I believe songs we sing in church can be misleading. Um, and, and I believe primarily, like my, my thing, my, my problem with Christian music, Christian radio, I'll say, as I listen mm. to Christian radio, is 
it generally, it seems like 80% of them, I was just telling Scott this the other day, it's like 80% is the same formula. Man, life is hard, things are tough, but you're gonna get through it. You can overcome it. And uh, it's, it's just kinda like you listen to me like, man, Christians must be really sad people. Um, and, and, there's, and it really becomes a lot of uh, voiced in like a pow, uh, power of positive thinking and, and keep a good attitude and keep your chin up and hey, you've got what it takes and God thinks you're really valuable and God thinks you're really important and he's gonna, um, which just isn't really the story of scripture, which isn't really the story that gets told to us a lot of times, uh, which, is, uh, which is that sometimes life is just gonna get harder and harder, but actually God is good even in spite of the difficulty in your life. Um, that, that even if you don't get pulled through it unscathed, that actually it's worth it to still follow Jesus. And, um, and it's not going to be by the power of your positive thinking that you make it through. And it's not because um, you're a really special person and because you're uh, so cute that God just really likes you. Um, it's, be, it's, it's because of the goodness of Jesus in my weakness. And, and even in my failures that he is able to work through those things with me. In worship music, sometimes my struggle is um, we sing a whole lot about how we feel in the moment about God, and we sing a whole lot about how nice it is to be connected to him, and not so much about um, him sometimes. And, and sing a lot about my commitment to him, which are, dude, even those things are okay to sing about. I think that my commitment to him flows from the truths about him. And so I would love for us to sing songs that are reveling in him and his character and not me and the closeness I feel to him. And, uh, and so I could probably go on, but those are kind of the first things off the, off the top of my head. I, I want to know how much is this song focusing on me and my stuff and how I'm either going to overcome it or how I feel close to God and how much is this drawing my eyes upward to God and who he is and his character and, and a lot of Christian radio is me and, and keeping a good attitude and keeping a good perspective in difficult times, which is not, not a terrible lesson, just kind of weak sometimes after a while. So, Plus some of it's just bad music. So, <laughs> yeah. Maybe do you... This is unrelated to everything else, but there's no way I'm ever going to be able to come here at 6.30 on Wednesdays this semester at least. Is there any other way that I can join a group? Um, we'll talk, man. We'll talk. we'll talk after this. Love to talk about. All right, Melissa, uh, we got a question for you. Um, if you've been in an unhealthy relationship and have lived in fear for a long time and want to be in a relationship, what can you do to prepare yourself for your hopeful relationship? Hmm. Oh, as a counselor, one of my knee-jerk reactions is to go to counseling and to talk about those things. Um, that would be a good use of counseling time. Um, I think if you've had time apart from that person, and I think that that just takes a lot of healing and learning what a, and focusing on what a healthy relationship is and looks like. Um, Learning what a healthy relationship looks like, and also learning what was unhealthy about your previous relationship, so that you're not repeating patterns. So that if things start to go downhill in a in another relationship, that you're aware of what you're looking for. That if someone starts to cut you off from your social support, starts to check your phone and your text messages and your Facebook messages for you, um, starts to kind of control or dictate um, maybe what you wear or 
um, how you do your makeup, if you start to notice some of those early warning signs, um, then that's going to help you to be in a healthier relationship in the future. I think you also, um, again, back to social support, you put some really intentional people around you and say, like, this is where I've been, and this is the kind of relationship that I want to work towards. So as I move toward, if I'm walking into a new relationship, I need you to speak into my life and tell me what you're seeing and how I'm doing and um, reach out for Christian accountability, biblical accountability in your relationship that will help you to um, not just not to not become isolated in that relationship. I think you just, I mean, it, it sounds like a generic answer, but I also think too, you just, you spend you spend time in, in community and being discipled and going to church and learning about Christ and um, being involved in spiritual disciplines. Um, that's that's where healing is going to come from ultimately. I think even more than, and in that regard, counseling is helpful, but not as helpful as that. Um, so there's there's a lot that you can you can do as you prepare yourself for a new relationship. I, th- I think talking to really intentional wise people about where you've been is probably going to be very helpful for you too. Um, actually, just because I've seen some people do this where I think is, is, is a good idea is um, we've had some that like have kind of sought out spending time with Demery and I, me and my wife. So like, and we didn't really even realize it, but I think that it's kind of exactly what you're describing, but a little bit more specific to finding relationships that you kind of look up to and what you want to be and spend yeah. intentional time with them. Yeah. Become intimately familiar with healthy relationships. I, I'm, I'm reflecting on too, thinking about like what the relationship was like in your home that you saw growing up too. Um, you may not have seen a healthy relationship. You may have even seen an abusive relationship. And so your idea of what a normal or healthy relationship might be, might be really distorted so that even if you're just in an unhealthy relation, unhealthy relationship that maybe isn't, Maybe it's abusive, maybe it's not, but that's better than what you saw growing up. I think that's just, in general, perhaps healthy for everyone to be able to talk about and identify and discuss the relationships that you saw in your home growing up and the the good parts of those, if, if that was there too, and also the un, unhealthy and unhelpful and perhaps even abusive parts of those too. So just helping yourself to become educated about relationships and putting yourself around other couples um, within your church community who can just model that for you goes a long way. It, it can show you what you want um, and be very encouraging too. That's good. Um, we'll, we'll wrap up for tonight. Uh, there, like I said, Scott and Rachel will put their numbers up there if you have questions there. If you want to come up, if you've got some other questions, I'm not going to make promises for Melissa <laughs> and Brian. Brian just flew in, hadn't seen his family. So, so like they will probably head to, if you see them headed to the door let them head to the door um, and, uh, and if you got questions maybe we can get I'll an email to you or something. I'll stick around for Okay, a cool. So Brian will stick for us to grant for a little bit. Um, we can get you connected to Melissa or whatever yeah. if she needs to get back we can get her email or whatever or something like yeah, that for sure. you if you've got questions and then, and then we'd love to talk with you. Hey listen um, I hope this is helpful. I hope whether you are a, a Christian for a long time or a brand new believer or someone who's just thinking about this stuff and not sure, or someone who really doesn't like any of this stuff um, and, and is, you know, would, would consider yourself anything but Christian. Uh, I hope, um, as much as anything, I hope that you can know that we love you and care about you and are glad that you're here. And that we do take seriously the things that Ryan said early on that like our, our goal is never just to win arguments. 
um, but to build friendships and to uh, and to get to know you and hear you more and so we'd, we'd love to hear from you if you've got questions we'd love to take you out to coffee if you need to talk more in depth um, we're glad you're here is there anything else that needs to be said tonight scott rachel okay um can i pray for us and then we'll wrap up dear god i thank you for uh, uh for wise men and women in your church that you've given us to be able to hear from people that we can listen to and learn and I pray that you would allow us to uh, that you would put in us a humility that is willing to seek out answers I pray that things that are said that were said tonight would roll around in our hearts and minds um, that uh, that your spirit would let those things sink deep into our hearts and begin to change and transform us um, wherever people may be in their faith journey um, that they would be impacted by these things, that your spirit would go and do a work in us through it. And I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Stick around. No more coffee for you. Take care of yourself. But if you want something else, you can you can have some tea or something. So, so give yourself depression. That's right. Thank you guys so much. No Appreciate it very much. For you it's guys fun. Take your time. I'm serious.